Hello and welcome to episode 121 of the Her Story Speaks podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing sacred and powerful stories of women who have too often gone unheard, but are most often the ones we need to be listening to. I'm your host, Andrea Miller, and I'm joining you from Kansas City, Missouri, on the native lands of the Kaw and Kickapoo Nations. If you spent any amount of time in anti-racism or justice work, you've likely heard it said that our liberation is connected. As Fannie Lou Hamer and so many other civil rights activists have said, nobody's free until everybody's free. But what does this actually mean? And do we really believe this? I don't know about you, but the last two months of the relentless mass killings of an entire Palestinian population in Gaza have opened my eyes more than ever and made me question even more the idea of collective liberation and what this actually means. So for this deeply important and complex topic and conversation, I'm truly honored to introduce you to my guest today, Dr. Paige Rawson, as we discuss this very topic. As a writer, speaker, life coach, epistem activist, and a biblical scholar with a doctorate in religious studies, Paige has both the life experience and education to speak into this topic of liberation and specifically how it relates to Palestine and what's happening right now in the world. As Paige says, having been raised in the Southern Baptist Church, spending a decade in church ministry and another two decades in academia, I was destined to become an epistemological activist. Having survived five years of conversion therapy, Paige also knows all too well the trauma inflicted by toxic theologies, including those of white Christian nationalism and Christian Zionism, which as Paige will share in our conversation, have been especially instrumental in the genocide in Palestine. Paige's personal experience of discrimination and dehumanization motivated them to self-acceptance, personal healing, and social action as well as the pursuit of an MDiv, an MA, and a PhD. Paige now focuses their energy on teaching, preaching, coaching, consulting, counseling, and educating people about the use and abuse of privilege. Paige truly has a passion for empowering minoritized people to advocate for themselves and encouraging solidarity among marginalized communities. Finally, as you will hear in our conversation, Paige is particularly interested in educating people about the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament in light of their historical relevance and deployment and representations of the Palestine-Israeli conflict. As you can imagine, with an introduction like this, Paige has much to share, and we fit a lot into this conversation. No matter how much you think you know about Palestine and liberation, this is a deeply important conversation and one that I hope you'll take the time to listen to in its entirety, then share with someone else who might need to hear this message that Dr. Paige Rawson has to share. Okay, we're just going to jump in. Dr. Paige Rawson, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to have you here. We first met and nevertheless, she preached where you are one of the, the keynote speakers. And that's where I first became introduced to you. And I knew I wanted to have you on as a guest and just kind of waiting for the right time. And this is the right time with sharing your story and how that intersects with freedom, liberation for everyone, specifically with what's going on with Palestine, Gaza, Israel right now. So we're going to 
jump into that later, but I'm getting ahead of myself and I'm just giving my listeners kind of a heads up of what we're going to talk about as well as your story, Dr. Paige Rawson. So before we get into all that, Paige, tell my listeners where you are in the world, kind of what your day-to-day life is like, just some of those basic things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you, Andrea. It's it's a pleasure and an honor to be here. I am currently residing in Orlando, Florida, um, which is quite an interesting and complicated space to be as a queer person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually was born and raised in the panhandle of Florida, so this is kind of coming home for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I traveled the world, I mean, actually literally, and lived in California, Southeast Asia, and back to New York and New Jersey to do my PhD in North Carolina. And then I've come back here and live with my partner. And I'm currently coaching. And so what's really fun about what I do now is that I'm able to integrate kind of these other things that I've done in my life throughout these other seasons and other iterations of Paige. So there was a decade where I was in the ministry, a decade where I was a professor, and now I'm getting to integrate my degrees and my expertise in helping coach clients to do the thing that I had to, that I had to learn to do to be able to live, to survive and to thrive and to, to be fully myself, which is I, I coach people to love themselves and to live into their fullest uh, being in the world. Yeah. So. You do. And I, I thought I knew a lot of your story getting to that point, but I listened yeah. again this morning to a YouTube that you have recording a more of your story that you have on your website. And I was just like brought to tears because I know this page now that helps coach others to love themselves. And a lot of your story was spent really not liking yourself and just not living in yourself and feeling like you are awful. And we're going to, we're going to talk about that because as a queer person, that is what so many growing up in the church have felt. So the page that I know and see today is not the page that that was in our 20s and teens and that. So I'm really looking forward to you sharing more of that because it's it's such a lesson for all of us and your story, how it's going to connect to liberation for all of us also. So I just really appreciate your vulnerability and sharing that page. Before you do share that page, just for my listeners, let's share a little bit of your origin story because I do think that's so important because it drives, I think, so much so much of our passion and it can go one way or the other often with our origin story, um, be very liberating or be very suffocating. And so just share a little bit with listeners because you, the air that you were born and raised in was not a liberating freedom. No, it was not liberative anyway. That's, that's mm-hmm. another right. Uh, I, and this will be a term that I come back to often, but I feel in a lot of ways, like I was raised in an environment that was colonizing me from the the moment that I took my first breath. Mm -hmm. And I honestly, I think that we all are. And so I grew up in an area of the, of the United States that still is very red, very conservative, um, Southern Baptist, um, white supremacist. So, so still a lot of racism, segregation, a lot of homophobia, transphobia, policies that, that are leading immigrants or others to feel as though they are not qualified to be treated with the same kind of rights as those of us who are white. And so growing up in this environment, I knew from a very young age that I was different and I felt my differentness. And that came in the form of sermons, in the in what I was led to read in the Bible, right? In what I was hearing from my parents and from my community. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I, 
I still hesitate to talk about how much my parents have influenced me because I, I love and I honor them, right? But a very important part of my story was me really being able to leave my home and leave my parents and feel very angry at them mm-hmm. and to stop protecting them. Right. I, I needed to individuate and I needed to become who I was. And, and, and it's so interesting, right? Because this same kind of psychological process we see play out on the, on a global scale as well. I mean, I think, and I'm going to go ahead and say this, but I think that's also in some ways what has happened in Israel, Palestine, um, in, in terms of projection, abjection, and really, really this way of needing to, and I did, I was angry with them and I needed to assert my own identity. And so, uh, so I left when I was, I left for college at that point, I was still very much entrenched in Southern Baptist ideology, right? I believed that I was called to the ministry from a very young age. Uh, you mm-hmm. mentioned me sort of coming out to my mom only to stay back in the closet, there was such a tremendous amount of, of self-loathing. And I, I do ache for the little page. And I've also spent so much time with a little page, loving little page, because I can feel uh, the deep, deep rejection. I think when I was younger, it actually, I was so much more interested in learning about what happened with the transatlantic slave trade, right? What happened with it to indigenous Americans? What, what was sexism? What about queer people? I was so curious about all these things because it was like, I could tell in my own otherness that there was something that was connecting me to people that didn't look anything like me. How did you have that awareness? I wanted to ask you that because hearing you talk about it, like, it sounds like from a young age, you were very justice oriented. And I'm like, how raised in a conservative Christian home? Because I don't even know if I knew the term patriarchy until five years ago. Like I was immersed. Yeah, 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 I'm like, yeah. I had no idea what all these other things were. So how at a young age, is it because of your feeling like othered or not belonging that you were like seeking that? 100%. Yeah. 100%. 100%. Because like, I remember when I was in kindergarten, this is so funny. Um, I remember when I was in kindergarten. I, uh, I was, I was listening to R and B and like, and like moving on. And I, I know it sounds funny, like kindergarten, but like five, six, seven years old, I had a PE teacher and a music teacher. Thankfully they were both black women who, who would actually spend time with me and play R and B for me and play hip hop for me. And we would sing together and we would play instruments together and we would dance. And I remember this kinship that I felt that I couldn't find. And I want to be very, very clear. I am white and I know that. And I know the privileges that affords me, right? And and even in those spaces, it was very a very complex, complex racial dynamic between me and these teachers, right? But what was wild was that the thing that I couldn't announce though was that was my otherness. And so I identified with them in theirs. And there was this way in which there was an empathy that was happening in me and an understanding on an implicit level, on a cellular level that we were connected and they felt safe. Miss Cook and Miss Smiley felt safer to me than my Sunday school teacher, my white Sunday school teacher or my white, right? And I'm grateful for them because they're probably like, what the is happening? With you know, but they could see that I was trying and I did. I mean, I got made fun of. I had a tremendous amount of energy. And I, I think you know this, I was I am neuroatypical. And so I just having all the energy that I had, some people could take it. And some we've talked about this with the too muchness, right? Some people I identify completely. My too muchness is just enough. You know, I'd come into a space 
face like a whirling dervish, you know, and people are like, I mean, here I am just with all the, or the Tasmanian devil, I've been called hurricane page as well. Um, right. But I'd come in with all the, and so th- that, right. For a lot of people, it was polarizing and I still feel mm-hmm. that way. Right. But at that point, I think it, to, to get to your, to, to answer your question. Yeah. I think I just, I knew, but I, I let me say this to Andrew at the same time. Uh, and this is how I am complicated. Like the Bible is complicated and contradictory, right. Is that, that even as I was experiencing this kind of what I would now understand was solidarity, there was also a, another current running in me. I 100% was raised in a racist, very, very homophobic, very, very Republican, conservative, evangelical Christian environment. And so that was also happening simultaneously, right? Mm -hmm. So there there was a cognitive dissonance for me and and I struggled with that. And I, I think that is why ultimately which we can get to, I got very, very sick because as I started to realize that I had desire for other little girls, right? Uh, That became something that I struggled with because I started to realize or to feel, to feel as if the enemy was within me. Mm -hmm. And that's a very, very particular form of gaslighting that happens in the church. And I talk about it as like the gospel of gaslighting because there's a way in which I felt I couldn't trust myself. I couldn't trust my desires. And I think that's a part of what happens with the way that Christianity colonizes bodies and minds. Even straight bodies, like with purity culture and women's sexual desires. Of course it does. It's so, it disembodies every one of us. Yes, yes, yes. Especially you as a queer child growing up, it, it's going to do that even worse. But yes, that is Christianity disembodies as disconnects her sexuality, all of it. Yes. So at 13, 14, you're recognizing though this attraction and you say to your mom, like, I, I think you ask her, am I gay? Am I queer? And she- Why homosexual? Because okay, this, homosexual. that's the only language that I have, which I, right, and I know you know this, right? But in 1946, yeah. 1946, this word is put into the Bible, was not there before, right? Mm-hmm. Which that's a whole other conversation, which we could talk about, but I know we're not really going into to, to biblical exegesis right now. It's okay wherever this conversation goes. I, I know we're going to hit on things. I mean, okay. 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 I'm aware of 1946. I'm aware of 1948, Paige, also. So if we Precisely. go... <laughs> well, and here's the thing too, right? Is that you have to think about this also, because even as I started to become aware of my own colonization, and what it would require for me to be liberated, if you want to go to 1948 too, right, was that it's so wild how there were certain things that were happening concurrently historically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I began to identify with the colonization of Palestine Mm -hmm. because of the way in which I and and queer people had been colonized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not the same, not the same. Audre Lorde, right, beautifully right? there's no hierarchy of pressure of oppressions and yet at any given time we have to be ready to stand for and with who specifically in that acute moment in time and history who do we need to stand up for and stand with mm-hmm. right now it is palestine right mm-hmm. and yes there is there in the democratic republic of congo there is unequivocally a genocide right and that too needs to be dealt with right now there's a there's a fever pitch around around uh, specifically what's happening in palestine because of israel but you were ta- you were saying 14. So I was actually, I think I might've been even earlier. I, it might've been at 11. Okay. Um, it was in middle school. It was in middle school. 
And I asked my mom if I'm a homosexual because that was the language that was in the Bible that it, that then in 1976, right? They took it out of the DSM. APA was mm-hmm. like, absolutely not. This is not a pathology, right? This is just this is just human sexuality. Again, now also right working with the Kenzie scale, realizing that sexuality is is diverse, is spectral. Um, but well, it, it's on the spectrum and it is spectral because it's fluid. Anyhow, okay. So, uh, but um, so much knowledge, Paige. Is you like you? I think you might be the smartest people I know. You have so much knowledge. So I appreciate you trying to stay like on topic because these breaches out into something way more complicated. So this is what I I think though, right? What I think is that we all have access. Yeah. If we have the capacity to open ourselves, which is a very fucking scary thing to do. Mm -hmm. But if we have the capacity to open ourselves to seeing like that, we all have the access to make these kind of connections. Mm-hmm. All of us. Yeah. If we have access to information and I was privileged enough to be able to get masters, to be able to get a PhD, you know? And that's the thing is what I realized in doing that is there is a tremendous amount of responsibility also in that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My responsibility is, is not just to queer people, but it is to black people. It is to indigenous people. It is to people, it is to, it is to immigrants. It is to refugees. It is, right. it is to people who in various ways are struggling with mental illness or different labels. Like, and that's the thing is it's like, I know that because in the depths of my body, I have experienced the pain of that kind of self-loathing. Mm-hmm. They got all the way down. They got all the way down. Mm-hmm. And I fought with everything I had. And I had to like to stay alive, Andrea. I needed to go mm-hmm. study this stuff. To stay alive. You almost died. You really did. Not just because you were suicidal at one point. Yes. Shared in that, like the only thing that stopped you from suicide was because you're afraid to go to hell. But then you're like, you know, you're gonna go to hell as a queer person for like, what the fuck do you do with that? When the doctrine of hell actually saves your life. Like what the fuck is that kind of messed up, right? That a toxic theology could actually. Yes. And, and this is it though. This is, this is how we never know. We just never know. Right. Right. Anyway, so you were saying, you were saying, no, I want to get, I want my listeners really to understand like this part of your story because I still have conservative family that think conversion conversion therapy works. So legitimate, right? Right. Yeah. So I mean, I want listeners to hear like you were part. This was part of your story, and when you talk about like literally being like this, almost killing you, it did. So yeah, good. And we're and we're really like I hate the word. You don't have a book, so I can't people tell people go read Paige's book like I usually can because we're when I can't really go into every part of a story. It's it is is in process right now, just so you know. Okay. Um, so yeah. Okay. So at some point you all be able to really dig into every part of Paige's story. We're just doing a really brief summary today um, yes. to get us to where we're going. So like you said, you feel called the ministry. You are yes. a youth pastor. You're ministering the word of God. You are traveling. You're a missionary. Is that fair to say? Okay. Beautiful. That's exactly what happened. Yes. Okay. Yes. So you find yourself in Singapore. Yes. Uh, and it sounds to me like it was like an evangelical type. This isn't even like a really like super progressive space, right? Okay. Oh, like, hell no. It was okay. like Pentecostal. Yes. Like we were moving in gifts of the spirit, speaking in tongues. Like I went from Southern Baptist, which I think a lot of people actually take this trajectory. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I need more. I got to go deeper. Or it had to be visceral for me. Go ahead. Okay. So we were we were talking earlier that you wouldn't have liked the other version of me, Paige. Actually, I think there was a point where we could have been really good friends right. in the old versions of ourselves because you were in it too. Okay. Um, okay, so you're in Singapore in your lower 20s, like immersed in like this evangelical 
Christianity and, but you're still wrestling with your queerness and knowing you're attracted to women. And since that middle school girl tried to come out to your mom, you have like been keeping this inside. Absolutely. You, yeah. I, I don't want to keep telling your story. You tell me what happens. Oh, I love it. No, it's good. Cause I, you know, that I need you to keep me on the rails. So that's actually wonderful. Um, <laughs> you know, like, and I'm going somewhere page and asking this question. Uh, let me get you there. So, uh, so I, uh, I was called to the ministry, uh, I, I, right. The way I tell my story, I talk about how uh, that well-worn path down the aisle of me rededicating my life over and over again. Cause I just felt so much guilt, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in hiding in suppressing who mm-hmm. I was. So, um, so I finally, after rededicate or after then being called to the ministry at like 14 and 15 and 16 at 17, I'm like, okay, it's missions or 18. Cause I, I, I went to college at 17 and I went to the passion um, the, the, I guess, what do you, what do you call them? They, they were like revivals or anyway. So they, there was a huge missions focus. I felt called to go into the mission fields because at this point I did not understand the collusion between Christianity and colonialism. I genuinely at this point was trusting my elders and teachers and mentors that Jesus was really going to save everyone. Mm-hmm. At this point, had not deconstructed what it meant that God was something outside of me or how that could be used as a tool. Right. And we can even talk about this, but the fact too that this God that was outside of me looked nothing like me, mm-hmm. that this God was white, this God was hetero, this God was cis. Mm-hmm. Right. And also that his son Jesus, somehow, though a brown Palestinian man also was white. Right. And so I hadn't unpacked any of that. So I go thinking, here I am. I'm going to, I'm going to go. I I get called to Singapore and the pastor of the church comes to my house right after I'd been, by the way, on a trip to Israel and Palestine in college, my senior year. I was going to ask you about that because I knew I had heard you share that somewhere else. So I wanted to under ask about that. So maybe can we put a pin in that and come back to that? Okay. So I, I go, I ended up going to Singapore. I, I answer the call. Um, and while I'm there, I am really struggling. I've left this woman that I was in love with. And I was under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Those of you who are listening can't see me doing air quotes, every other uh, word. But under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I started to just bawl my eyes out in guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. And also because I was missing her. And also because of, you know, obviously culturally, you know, being away from my family and, and, and all those creature comforts. So some culture shock there. I was at an all night prayer meeting. I ended up confessing to the pastor and his wife about homosexuality and unbelief, right. That I, I struggled. I don't know if I believe that the Bible is literally true. I don't know that Jesus saved everyone in the world because here I am. And again, more cognitive dissonance here I am walking around this place, trying to share my faith with Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and free thinkers. And I'm realizing that these people, they look a lot more like and act a lot more like and live a lot more like what I was reading of Jesus, what I believed of Jesus, than the very people who were teaching me about Jesus and who were trying to spread the gospel. Right. And so um, so I, so I confessed that I didn't believe, you know, and, and that I had struggled with homosexual feelings or desires. And they told me that I was filled with a demon of homosexuality and a demon of unbelief. 
And that began, so here I am on mission in Singapore, and that began a five-year process of me going through numerous reparative therapies, ex-gay ministries, right? Um, Did you uh, believe that? Like when they told you that, you believe that? That, Uh, yes, they are right. And that's why I need to get into five years of, I mean, not that you said five years, but that's why I need to like fix this or get this exercise. So you must've believed what they told you. So this is a really interesting question. Did I actually believe it? At this point, I didn't know that I could trust myself and my instincts. For sure. Again, how, how comprehensive this kind of colonization was, this sort of gaslighting, right? That I was, I was incapable of really accessing what I believed was true in my body. Not to mention my, my frontal lobe hadn't even crystallized yet. At that point, I was 21 years old, 21. Then I trusted the people around me to guide me. Right. I, I believed that they were God, like God had brought them into my life to teach me what was right and to guide me in the way that I should go. And so when they said that, I thought also because in a lot of ways it resonated with what I'd already been taught that the heart is selfish above all things. Right. When you keep saying that, that, that is gone through my mind, like the the heart is deceitful above all else. Well, exactly. But that's the thing is that's how deep our programming is. Like that's how good they did. What a good job they did at conditioning us and indoctrinating. We had to memorize them all, you know, we had to memorize Absolutely. I know. I know. And that was the thing is, is also, you know, and I, Andrew and I were joking earlier before the podcast, like I'm an eight. So it was like, I had to go and I had to go like all the way, yeah. like everything I did, I had to be top notch, first rate, like, uh, you know, whether it was studies or sports or homecoming queen or flirty, blah, 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 all these things. So if it was, if I was going to serve God, I had to go all the way to the mission field and do the hardest thing. Because at that point, I couldn't comprehend any sort of relationship with God that wasn't requiring me to sacrifice myself mm-hmm. and the self I was told I could not trust. Mm-hmm. Right. So there was no chance for me to love myself. I had no chance at loving myself unless I got the fuck out of there. And here's the thing, right? I, I, I joke and say the ambulance, the ambulance is what rescued me from the closet. But only loving myself could keep me out of it because after five years, so I spent three years in Southeast Asia and the entire time I I just kept going and kept going. I was like, God, oh, if there's any way, and I I would just pray and I would Bible roulette, you know, I'd worn down specifically those passages that that said homosexuality, but they're not talking about homosexuality, you know, and I'm not saying that there isn't homophobia in the text. I'm not saying that, right? it's, it's a very contradictory and complex text. It's been used to argue both sides of enslavement, sexism. I mean, let's go, let's go. You're right. All in there. Right. It's all in there. It's all in there. You have a doctorate in Bible theology. Like what is it? It is in, so I say it's in religion and philosophy because what I actually started to study beyond the Bible was I started to, to study post-colonial theory, queer theory, uh, post-structuralist theory. So I was looking, so I'm reading, studying uh, Amé Césaire, I'm studying uh, Edouard Glissant, Jacques Derrida, you know, I don't, I don't want to drop things, but right, so all the post-structuralist feminists. Mm-hmm. So what I was doing is I'm, I'm studying religion, I'm looking at it also in a comparative way, but I'm utilizing philosophy, specifically like post-colonial philosophy and queer philosophy mm-hmm. to actually, in theory, to start to look at these texts and really to look at religion and how religion has functioned as a method of and means of social control. control. So it's 
it's it's also right it connects us religio it it links us yes absolutely to the divine and to one another it provides community but another thing that it does is that it has the capacity to alienate from our us from ourselves and ironically our community and god huh mm-hmm. oh, and oh, that's oh, exactly exactly what yeah. you experienced yes yes when you're in your early 20s like when you're trying to be your authentic self you say what you said and then so for 5 years you spent in conversion therapy and we could have several episodes just about that. Do you feel pertinent like to share just a little bit of like what that looks like? I mean, for people that don't know. Absolutely. 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 So, um, so, so what this means is that what it looked like for me was that I was going through, Oh my gosh, I just realized, you know what I think I have. So this is living waters. So I went through um, Exodus. Interestingly, the heads of Exodus have come out as gay. And said, mm-hmm. I'm so sorry for what I've done, right? I mean, many of these ministries is the case, right? So Living Waters, um, uh, Love One Out. I don't I don't want to just focus on the family. I don't want to go into all the names. I'm LL. You tried just, them all, Paige. You tried I, them all. I literally, if, if anybody was going to get straight. Yes. If anybody was going to get straight, I was determined it was going to be me. Right. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so for five years, I did this. And I had to see, I had to see a therapist, not a Christian counselor, sorry, because it was not legitimate psychotherapy. I did that after this, right? But for five years, I had to see a Christian counselor multiple times a week. I had to go through um, reprogramming in terms of like my desire, my dress, the decorum of a lady, right? I had to, um, I was surveilled. I had to live with other families so that they could keep an eye on me. I had uh, weekly meetings where I also had to check in with a group and let them know about my desires and confess what had come up or what, right. And then I had to do homework, right. Every single day, there was the expectation and the way that I do things again, all the way, all the way. And so, so this was just text. And I mean, we could, we could talk, I mean, this is pursuing sexual and relational wholeness in Christ. And I mean, they just, it was, it's an, I mean, it's just, binding. I can't see, but Paige is showing me a very, very thick oh, uh, binder notebook of all her worksheets and pages of writing and exercises and everything, like trying to quote deprogram and make you straight. Yeah. And all the while you're doing this, giving it at all, you're getting your body, your physical body is getting being traumatized. I am in trauma. Yeah. yeah. And this is where the body keeps the score and you literally are like, dying um yes, yes. And so- my body was eating away at itself i i was in pain i for golly probably six months i would i don't i don't know how graphic to be but every time i would eat i would go to the bathroom mm-hmm. and i would eat up to 12 times a day mm-hmm. because i was famished and i needed calories and i needed and it, it always entailed a tremendous amount of pain as mm-hmm. well. And so there was a war within my body. My yeah. body was warring against itself yeah. because of this insidious ideology, right? How toxic this theology is, is the, that toxicity was actually manifesting in my, specifically in my gut. Yeah. And so I was hospitalized um, for, for over a month. So was that, was that your low point, your wake up call where you were like, oh my God, this, I'm, fuck this, this is not working. And I need to like get out of this and be now start loving and being my authentic self. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't just an overnight thing, but was that, I'm guessing the wake up call. 
Absolutely. I think there were a number of things that happened in that season, which I'm not going to go into because again, these are really important sort of tangents, but I mean, they're not tangential. They're, they're very important integral in my story, mm-hmm. but for our purposes today. Um, so I, I was in the hospital and realized this on my own that, um, that I was going to die if something didn't change. Mm-hmm. And the doctors, in fact, I mean, I was, I was emaciated. I, I am already a pretty tiny human being. I mean, I'm, I'm five, eight, so, you know, and I'm strong, but, um, <laughs> but I'm thin. And so I had lost, uh, between 60 and 70 pounds and I, and the doctors didn't know what was wrong with me. They couldn't figure it out until they did. But, um, which actually interestingly came after this particular episode, I was in a hospital in the panhandle of Florida and so I'd returned back home after Singapore and was, li- was living there. And I was a youth pastor also working for the fellowship of Christian athletes. And I, <laughs> I had come into contact again with a, a she was, uh, she was a soccer referee of mine who was the only out lesbian in my community. And uh, she scared the crap out of me as a kid. I was just so fascinated by her. I was just like, Oh my gosh. Whoa. She had left her family. Right. Her, her, oh, I shouldn't say she left her family. She built a new family. She left her husband and she found the love of her life in a woman. Mm-hmm. And her name was Booth. And she had been seeing my girlfriend come in and spend the night overnight and then leave in the morning at a girlfriend at the time. And, um, and she came and found me one day when I was in the room alone. And she looked me in the eyes and she said, Paige, I just want you to know. God loves you just the way you are. And my little emaciated body, you know, I mean, I was just so, I I just started bawling because it was exactly what I needed to hear. And I realized after Booth left, I was like, I need to know that for myself. Like I need to find a way to love myself for exactly who I am and to believe that God lives in me. And loves me. And so that that was it for me. I mean, that was absolutely I decided that I was gonna get my strength back right after. And I started, you know, they they started to find some answers and and I gradually got strength back. And then I moved like a good little queer. I moved myself to San Francisco. I kind of know that part of your story. I've heard it and I'm like, yes, she did. <laughs> you know what I mean? All the way. I'm gonna go all the way, Andrea. I'm gonna go all the way, Andrea. So uh and that that was it for me. Is I so that's why you asked about my degrees. So I'm gonna bring it back for a second. I got an MDiv and then I I did an MA in which the MDiv actually included pastoral counseling and care. And so I was, I was also then in legitimate psychotherapy and, and then I was being trained to do the same kind of stuff. And then, because I was also doing some other certificates simultaneously. And then I did an MA in biblical languages because I realized there's no text without context. And that's, that's human bodies and that's textual bodies. Mm-hmm. In order for us to be able to understand anybody, mm-hmm. we have to know where is there some place, right? Or what's the time? Where is this particular being coming from? I need to understand what's behind them to know what they're showing me, to tre- truly, truly be able to interpret what they're showing me. And so I started to study the historical context of the Bible and um, in the original language. And I tell you what, I started getting pissed because I was like, man, these Christian evangelical pastors (laughs) teaching this text. I mean, it's the equivalent of like a middle school 
football coach grabbing a scalpel and starting brain surgery because he watches ER. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. So anyway. Mm -hmm. So with that, okay. So your passion also, and I'm thinking it's around the same time. Yes. Very focused on liberation, intersectionality, seeing queerness, how that relates to racism. So I think like, let's talk a little bit about that because that'll get us a little bit deeper to where we're going today. So intersectionality, I don't know if that is a term that was, if that term had been coined by Kimberly Crenshaw then or not, but yes, it is. It was. Okay. So you start seeing that and your eyes are opening to that. So Talk to me a little bit about that. You're like awakening of how all of the, this oppression is, is related. And then your growing passion for voicing that, that liberation. Yes, 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 yes. Good. So a lot of what was happening for me is as I began to study the Bible, right. And get and and say, okay, you know, if I'm going to be, if I'm going to be fully me doing this, Right. I need to be able to take a look at all of these systems. And so, I mean, I was lucky enough too to go to Berkeley and to go to the Graduate Theological Union and Pacific School of Religion. And so there, there's a very like social justice is the focus. Okay. So all these questions that I already had and all of the sort of uh, research that I was doing on my own, I chose to go to a place where I would be able to see the interconnectedness of oppression. Okay. Where I would be able to understand the gospel as a social justice movement, not a movement toward colonizing 80% over of the planet. And so, so I had friends, honestly, I had a lot of friends of color who were walking with me through this. And at the time I was looking at what was happening in Israel and Palestine or looking at what Israel was doing to Palestine. I was looking at what was happening in the Philippines and was going into the Philippines and we were doing work with the International Human Rights Committee there on the disappeared. And so I was looking at military bases, right? The way that the U.S. is strategically gaining footholds in specific places in the world. And because here's the thing, that's like one string, the whole sweater began to unravel. I started to realize the way that this is, it's a strategic, it's a strategic narrative. It is a very systematic way of honestly gaining total world dominance, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was like, well, crap. And it was interesting to me too, Andrea, to be honest, there was some internalized homophobia, I think too. It was a lot easier for me to go into protest with my friends of color at that point than it was for me. Like I remember Prop 8, I was finally able to go to protest for Prop 8, but that was because I'd already been in San Francisco and Berkeley for years. And I finally felt safe enough to really advocate for myself, but it was a lot easier, interestingly, for me to advocate for and with Black, Indigenous, people of color, and really for for the earth also, right? I mean, economic injustice. But I think that during that time, I really began to see to the way in which I had been bamboozled, um, like in my whiteness, what I had, how I'd been raised to see the world. And I started to listen to the stories of other people. I started to to really go and advocate for and with. And there were times that I would get in spaces. And I remember going to the Philippines very specifically, and it created problems within our group. And I was like, shit. And I realized like they were looking to me to take the mic because of my whiteness. And the same thing had happened in Singapore. And it it was, it's disgusting, honestly, because what I was seeing too was internalized racism, 
right? Uh, the way that I was manifesting. And so, so it's anyhow, I mean, I, I don't know that I, I guess this is a part of the larger conversation that we're having, but just really my eyes being open to and, and where we go immediately as white people, I think often, and this is Robin D'Angelo's book on white fragility, right? Is where we go right away is because we have not evolved enough yet is to, def- to being defensive, right? Into that shame, into that space of white tears and feeling guilt, right? Which is a necessary part of the process. It's okay that that's where we go right away because it's it's shocking. It's mm-hmm. horrifying to realize that you have been complicit in a system that you didn't even realize. But it's it it's the reason that I was able to get there, Andrea, honestly, that I was able to question my whiteness and the privilege therein was because of my queerness. Mm, wow. Because if I hadn't known otherness, and this is the thing that I, I think becomes really important. And, and if I may, right, like when we look at root myths of origin in texts like the Bible, and when we look at, for instance, one of the calling cards of white supremacy culture is either or thinking, right? Bifurcated thinking. So polarized thinking, which is also distorted cognition. It's it's pathology. But this idea that you have to be one or the other, it pervades colonial thought mm-hmm. because the colonial agenda, that is a white supremacist agenda. That is the Western European, a Western European epistemology and ideology, 100%, right? And this is when we talk about Zionism too. Zionism just is just another form of colonialism, but we can hold off on that for a second because the thing that i want to say actually does also apply to israel and palestine when we look at this bifurcated thinking though we begin to see that the entire world has been set up in hierarchical binaries mm-hmm. and the powers that be will not disrupt those no no because it keeps them securely in power i kind of want to go off on that a little bit but maybe i'll, I'll give a moment for some breath or, or a question I, we can always come back so I, I want to keep following you, Paige, because there's so many ways that we could go and we could talk for hours about all the outlets and the, the paths that it take. And I, I'm also thinking like, yes, and especially as conditioned as white women in the church, like we are the ones that uphold the whole system. And then when we start to break out a little bit, that is not <laughs> it's not taken well with the world at large. But yeah. again, why that's so important as white women to be speaking up. And I know your pronouns are she, they, so... Yes. Do you still it's okay? It's okay. I'm not, I'm absolutely not offended. I'm not committed to labels. I just, so your eyes are becoming open to the interconnectedness of the oppression. Also how you've been complicit in it very much along my lines, um, except you are like really, really radically in that space. And so let's really relate that to a little bit, not a little bit, like that's where I want to go is how this relates to Israel, Palestine. And like you said, you went there when you were in a long time ago, this is not new. Like you visited there and I don't know, do you want to go off like why you visited there or what that trip entailed or what maybe started a seed to be planted that your eyes were opened? Because I'm kind of curious about that because you are very, I know you're very passionate about any kind of injustice, but right now where we sit, you're, you are so passionate as we all should be about a genocide that's happening, but you had some prior seeds planted before, before now. Yes. So for me, actually going there and realizing that there were, and seeing with my own eyes. And again, at this point, I was not yet fully able to understand the magnitude of the settler colonialism and the apartheid that actually was happening right since 1948 Mm -hmm. in Palestine. Mm -hmm. At the time I was seeing these walls and I was seeing checkpoints and I was seeing 
the ways in which we were traveling freely in between these locations and recognizing there was only a like one group of people that was allowed this freedom. And yet when you look at world maps prior to 1948, all of this land was the land of Palestine. And so at that point, I was like, oh, whoa. And so I began at that point, too, to start to think about the way in which our United States government has been in an alliance with Israel. And that this, as I started doing my research, right, not just listening to what was being told to me in church by Christian Zionists, right, because the root myth of origin within Christianity, like in the Torah, is that Abraham, who was not from the land of Canaan, was being promised the land of Canaan. Mm-hmm. 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 And so this then justifies theologically, ideologically, politically now, as these all three of these are, are working together, the taking of this land. At the time I was reading, I was like, oh, yes, wow. Okay, God is promising, right? Because like a good Christian, I believe that God was promising us the world because they needed to be saved. And so that was how I saw this project was a part of really God's mission, God's desire, particularly look at Christian Zionism. So if in Zionism, right, a different form of colonialism that now, which actually weaponizes the trauma and grief of, mm-hmm. of Jews, yeah. right? Israel, the, the state of Israel is not the same as Judaism, right? To be clear. Uh, so, so weaponizing that trauma, right? They then begin to take more and more and more of this land, displacing Palestinians, killing Palestinians, right? I'm starting to realize, oh my gosh, there's a way in which this bifurcation has been set up between Israel and Palestine, just like I've been told I'm not straight, I'm gay, right? I'm not male, I'm female, right? I was on the underside. And then we look at intersectionality, it gets even more complex when we think about then not white, not first world, not Christian, but Mm -hmm. other. So I began to realize, oh my gosh, what is happening? These people, the Philistines, are being represented in this text in a very strategic way. They're uncivilized barbarians that need to be essentially exterminated so that they're standing in the way of God's people getting the land that they deserve. And then I started to realize, oh my gosh, right? Language construction reality. I was like, holy crap, Philistine is Arabic for Palestinian. And so this was a representation of these people that served a very specific purpose. And you can't eradicate a people without vilifying them. You absolutely have to make them the enemy, right? And that's how this us versus them I mean, that's how it was working in the text. I realized, oh my God, this is a part of what the United States has been doing. Like even when we went and we were the saviors of the Jews as Nazi Germany was exterminating Jews. Oh my goodness. We then saved them, not giving them our land, not inviting them here. We took somebody else's land that already had a people. It was not without a people, right? We put them there. And what did that do? That gave us a strategic foothold so that we could also, we could also weaponize the trauma of this people so that the U.S. now has a foothold there in a very important place, right? And so in the world, so, I mean, there's so much more here to unpack. There's so much history and maybe you could recommend if you, I mean, I've watched several videos and I've shared that never she preached with the resources, but there's so much history. I mean, we're very much summarizing like what was done in 1948. I mean, 90% of Palestinians were removed and colonized in 19, when that happened, when that was given to Zion. There's so much. I'm like, I want to, do we keep talking about the history? I don't know. Or do we just go into how it's related to us? I know. 
It's a really good question. I'm going to let you decide that. What I will say is Palestine Academy. Palestine Academy is a great resource. Okay. I'm just going to name that one. And okay. if people want other resources, we can possibly give them to them when when you actually okay. do uh, release the podcast. I think what's important, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to list some resources for people to go in and learn some deeper dives into okay. this. History. Okay. Because I think what's important is... And I heard you say this with Kindle with Nevertheless, she preached like so many people will say, so two months ago today, October 7th is when Hamas attacks Israel. Yes. So many people will say, oh, that's when it started. Or this is like, what about that? No, this is not when it started. So maybe speak into that. This has been an ongoing attack against the Palestinians. It did not start two months ago today. And so, but in the last two months, we find ourselves with 20,000 approximately. Good. Palestinians killed. Right. Really half have been children. 75% of Gaza's hospitals are inoperable. Displaced yes. 2 million people in the last two months in yes. Gaza. Yes. So that's where we do find ourselves Yes, in the last two months. But this did not start just two months ago. So maybe speak in that a little bit. And then we'll talk about why this matters. Why, the, why our liberation is actually connected. So we keep talking about 1948, right? And 1948 is when the state of Israel really emerged, right? And we see Britain and the U.S. being a strategic part of this right after World War II. So already we'd seen this movement of Zionism. The Jewish people, most of them were living throughout Western Europe or throughout, throughout Europe, I should say. And so there was a desire to come back to this homeland coming. And then the theology was being used, the theology that is biblical theology was being used to justify that. And so this began to happen over time. And I, I wish that we were able to show graphics, right? Because what we what you'll see is the land no longer, and this is the Nakba, this great catastrophe where the Palestinian people were, were being displaced, were being killed, and Israel was gradually growing, gradually colonizing this space and then creating an apartheid regime. So now what we have is Palestinians, millions of Palestinians being relegated to small areas that are surrounded by Israel mm-hmm. and they are being policed mm-hmm. right, by the Israeli Defense Force, who we now are calling the Israel Occupation Forces. And so what's happening, and I think this becomes really important because, and, and Paolo Frede becomes instructive here, Israel has created a self-fulfilling prophecy. They have created the conditions for the Palestinian people The only way that they can have any sort of rights or really have any sort of land, right? I mean, this is what happens when you oppress and oppress and oppress and oppress a people when you push them down so hard and then they react. What we saw on October 7th was Mm -hmm. simply a response to, and there had been heightened aggressive actions by Israel before October 7th. But what we saw was a response of the people saying no more. And so it was actually an effort toward humanization. It's an eff- it's a cry. Mm-hmm. It's a cry, an outcry against their own dehumanization. Mm-hmm. Now I can hear people. I'm going to devil down. Go ahead, please. So please. that means you you don't condone Hamas when you say that? Like that, is that what you're saying? I'm not saying that. I'm saying- No, no, I know. That's, that's the <laughs> argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. You know, so, what do you say to that? Well, so what I would say is um, that question of itself- is interesting mm-hmm. because the fact that we even want to, and again, this is this is white privilege, right. that we want to identify this and what Hamas did, and we really just are hyper fixated on yeah. this. It is a distraction technique. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I understand that you're asking me that, and you're going to keep on asking me that because, in some way, 
this helps you to not have to take responsibility for 75 years of the most diabolical, disgusting sort of oppression. And that's it, is that, you know, Israel has its boot on the neck of Palestine. And that's the thing is, it's like they created the, these conditions and now they're mad at the people for for responding. That's right. For responding. And, and this is the thing with Frede, you know, Pella Frede says, without conscientization, right? Without a shift in consciousness, the oppressed will always become the oppressor because we can't understand. We don't have a worldview and a framework that has evolved beyond this sort of bifurcated understanding of reality where there is us versus them and one and we are over right right versus wrong again white supremacy culture right that there is only one right way that has limited us and the beautiful configurations of humanity in all the ways right really celebrating the diversity of ethnicities races sexualities genders multiple right Mm -hmm. and so you know and so what friday says is Right. The only hope that we have is conscientization. The only hope that we have, right, is that, that, that I can see myself in you and you can see yourself in me. And we don't have to project and abject mm-hmm. to a point where, and that's often what it is, is the worst parts of me I'm projecting onto you. That's what's happening in Israel. Calling Palestinians terrorists mm-hmm. when they themselves are terrorists. Again, come on, gaslighting. Do you know what I mean? Come on, scapegoating. I mean, that's, these are these are such unevolved psychological machinations. If we could move beyond the either or, there's a way to protect Jewish people that is not Zionism, that does not demand or entail the killing or the vilifying and villainizing of another group of people. But that's just it, right? And we live, unfortunately, in a society right now that is actually profiting from Israel. We profit from what Israel is doing. And we have to name that. And we have to say that. And we have to get sick about it. And we have to scream about it. And we have to yell about it. Because this is about us. This is about humanity. This is about not being bamboozled, not being being hoodwinked, not being taken advantage of. We see you. We see you. And it is not okay. So is this, this is the question of how how this connection of how it's related. You know, we hear from Fannie Lou Hamer, nobody's free until everybody's free. Or Audrey Lord, I've had that on my desk. I'm not free while any woman is unfree, even when her shackles are different from my own. Or Martin Luther King, injustice anywhere is a threat. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So we say these things, we throw them out there. I do. But then it's like, do we really know what they mean? And then why these same people that have thrown these things out there are having such a hard time speaking up against genocide in Palestine. So that's a lot all in one. But let's start with like what that actually means. Why is the liberation for the Palestinians? Why does that even connect or relate to us? I mean, besides just the humanity of it, why should we care? Like, that seems like such a stupid, silly question. Like, we should care of genocide. As far as collective liberation, why does that matter? How does that... Why don't we care? So what do we mean when we say... Our liberation is tied to each other. Nobody's free until anybody's, everybody's free. What does that mean? Because that is long, that is long. That's right. As long as fascism is allowed Mm -hmm. to progress, to continue, Mm -hmm. nobody is safe from the threat except for white, het, cis men, genuinely. Right. And, and the, and the white women that are on their coattails, unfortunately, cupping. Okay. So that's just the thing is that's questionable too, because you fall out of line just a little bit and yeah. 
And you know firsthand, Andrea. <laughs> you're not this safe. Is so your this if is you can your play exactly by the rules, I guess you have a facade of safety. Yes. You're making a, no, no, you're making a great point because you are still self-loathing and mm-hmm. internalizing all that sexism. That's a great point. That's a great point. Good. So that's a thing is as long as colonialism is allowed and it is happening in real time in front of us. Right now, we are watching colonialism happen and we are not on the right side of history as a country and as a people. And that is, and I understand the fear, but that is 100% white privilege. Even if you're not white and you're not speaking out, right? That is a part of Western European privilege. That is a part of white supremacy culture, right? I mean, that is really the privilege of being an American that you can turn your eyes, that you can close your eyes. Mm-hmm. And and I understand, I get it, right? Like that people don't want to get involved. It's too complicated. I want to preserve my peace. But again, all or of my job, people, like this is like people are losing jobs and okay. like, no, I mean, right. I'm just saying people have all these excuses. I'm not saying that's justified, but I'm saying this is a real one. You, you are going to lose something from speaking up normally yes. against yes. and B. And this is right here, right in front of us, a big example of the powers of B that want complacency. Yes. Yes. And I want to, I want to name this as, as white Americans and as Americans, we have an expectation that we have a right to comfort. Mm-hmm. I understand Please hear me because I'm not telling, I don't think everybody can do what I did and quit their job in academia and now go out and be a life coach and, and speak and do it. Right? But I think that this is, this is the heart of conscientization. This is the heart of raising the consciousness of our planet, right? Like what is it really that you're living for? And that is why this one is bringing us to our knees and to our feet really, because And we always say this in activism, Palestine is the litmus test where someone stands on Palestine is really the litmus test Mm. because if you can stand for Palestine, then you really, really, really are willing to do the work and to see how insidious colonization is and the ways that, right, that white supremacy and Zionism, they're all working together. Um, But I think, you know, you ask this question and I mean, I could say more on that, but I want to say this. I don't want to forget. You know, you said um, you were asking about why we should care. And I just I find it so ironic. I I also find there's just a number of ironies right now that it's like, wow. Um, And can I pause you? I'm not asking that, like, convince me to care. Like, I can't like. I care, but I'm I want to shake. About you. I want to shake that so many people don't seem to care. That's what I'm just trying to get across. Anybody that's listening, you need to care. This matters so much. And if you haven't. If you haven't, and here's the other thing. And I can't. I'm not going to speak. Here's the thing. I'm not going to speak for people who have been traumatized because of racism. I really, genuinely, I am honestly speaking more, and I, I really am being very serious to to a white audience right now. Because here's the thing: if we haven't in our bodies experienced oppression, if we haven't in our bodies truly like understood the level of our own dehumanization or our own othering, it's very, very difficult to have any sort of empathy or sympathy for anyone else. Right. And I do honestly believe Linnaeus in the 1700s, right? Early 1700s. And so this is when origin of species, like we're looking at, at what was happening with the scientific revolution. This is the beginning of scientific racism. He creates the taxonomy of races. And I genuinely believe that subconsciously there is still a belief in white people that white lives are more important, which is exactly why we see everyone up in arms for Ukraine and Ukrainian flags still flying all over the place. For sure, 100%.
this would not be happening. We would not be seeing these videos of, 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 of white babies being killed and buried and dismembered and, and this continuing. I mean, I've thought that every day as I've watched some of these, like if this was white babies, this would not be happening. I believe that. Yeah. And it, the thing that, that, that blows me away when we talk about these, these great ironies, right. Is that there's this story of David and Goliath in the Bible and Goliath was a Philistine and David was one of the the Hebrew or Hebrew people, which it's difficult. They were composite people. It's actually difficult to say that there were ever sort of, there were <laughs> Arabs there before anyone. Okay. So that's, that's. Oh, I love you Paige. Yes. I know it's all so complicated, damn but, it. But, but, but here's the thing, right. And, and yet it isn't right. It is. And yet it isn't, but it's so ironic that we have now the roles reversed that Israel is Goliath, like actually has all of this ammunition and all of the support and all these, and now the ones throwing stones are in fact the Palestinians because that's all they have to protect themselves. Um, So then the other great irony that I want to point out that's also biblical is that Jesus was a Palestinian Jew, a Palestinian Jew because he was born and raised in Palestine and Jesus was a, a brown man. So it's amazing to me the way that, again, this collusion of, of Christianity and colonialism, the ways that, the gospel has been co-opted and the ways that Christian Zionism now has absorbed this sort of ideology, because when Jesus was walking the earth, Jesus was anti-empire. The empire killed Jesus. The Roman empire killed Jesus. The same Roman empire that 300 years later, almost 300 years later, actually metabolized, absorbed, co-opted, appropriated the gospel and then used it in the project of colonization. Yes. Yes. And I'm so glad you brought this up. And I do want to, um, I think this is a, and I don't want to end in the next minute or at all. I'm saying this particular topic or this part of this huge topic is I I wanted to go here if we had time um, because of your most recent Instagram post. And I want people to go to that. And I'll probably put a link on that, but you started off and this, this podcast will be released in December. And so this is the time of Chris- Christmas for most people, even if you're a Christian or not a Christian, however you recognize this. But you said in that post during the season, as some of us are preparing our hearts for the holidays and others' hearts are being rended as they grieve the loss of their loved ones, their homes, their rights, and their indigenous lands, there is really only one thing on my heart, the grave importance of connecting this holiday with the crisis in Palestine. So that's what I want to allow space for in this final, this final segment of our conversation of connecting that where we're at. And like you just said, Jesus was a Brown Palestinian is all related. And the fact that this is happening right now, take it, take it where you want else you want to go with that. Cause this like your post was so, so good. I wrote so much of it down, but so important. I mean, like you just said, Jesus was murdered by the Roman empire who colonized, who then colonized Palestine around 66 BCE. Like it's so all related. Before they'd already colonized. So they, and this is the thing, right? Is that these, these colonial powers, these imperial powers, and this is what the British did right around World War One. They did this. They came into Palestine and did the same thing. Right. And so Palestine has been passed from imperial power to imperial power to imperial power. When you look at it. So so they uh, colonized uh, Palestine around 66 BCE. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they crucified Jesus because he was he was seditious. He was anti-imperial. And that's who Jesus is. 
when we look at who Jesus is, strip away all of the other imperial language in the text. Revelation itself is not, the Bible is not meant to be read literally, right? This was an oral text. We, in our white supremacist culture, post-enlightenment, think that everything needs to be read literally. No oral culture was ever telling these stories, thinking that someone was going to say, hmm, wait a second. Now, what year was it that Moses talked about people on it? You know, they don't, that's just not happening. It wasn't, that wasn't important because truth was not, it didn't have to be factual for them. Truth was in the telling of the story. Truth is in the imagery. Truth was in the symbol. Truth is in the metaphor. Truth is in the meaning behind it, the meaning and the message. And so when I think about the meaning of Jesus, and this holiday, which, which by the way, this is really important to think about the fact that the, the resurrection itself, I mean, Paul didn't even believe really in a literal red resurrection. And I have qualms with Paul for other reasons, but, but, but this is important. We don't actually know that the resurrection literally happened, but the idea of the resurrection, that shit's powerful. Right. That you, that you can actually be raised to new life after some sort of imperial power has has destroyed you mm-hmm. right. that's jesus right. that's jesus in the rubble that's jesus in gaza that's jesus in christmas if jesus represents the solidarity of god with the oppressed born in a fucking manger mm-hmm. who from jesus birth were told in luke right herod was out to kill him the imperial powers then were out to kill him you know what i mean yeah just wanted that's exactly what Palestinians are living. And Israel is the imperial power and, and the U.S. in collusion with, right? Right, mm-hmm. working with and supporting. And so if we think about Jesus as God's solidarity with us, right? Because what did Jesus say? Where's the kingdom of God? It's not here or there. It's within you, right? God is in us. And God in solidarity with us means God in Palestine, in the rubble. That's where we find him. Mm-hmm. We find God protesting empires, we find God protesting genocide. We find God protesting any form of demon. We find God protesting enslavement, right? I mean, we got to whittle it all the way down. If the greatest commandment is to love others as I have loved you, that is all that matters. And that's exactly what Jesus said. That's it. So what does it mean? How much do you love yourself? How much do you lo- How much can you love others, mm-hmm. right? And many of us don't actually know how to love ourselves, particularly when we were raised in this kind of society that is seeking to alienate us from our true selves and from the God in us, right? Because the second you say that God is outside you, who argues? The second you say God gave me a message, you are in, and that's just it, is like the truly empowering thing is finding God within us and really, I think, recognizing the way in which the resilience of Palestinians after 75 years of this continue to fight. They continue to rise. They continue to hope. They continue to faith. And that's the thing is, it is the least that I can do to speak up for you. Mm -hmm. It's the least that I can do to Mm -hmm. cheer you on, to believe in you, to watch your stories. So anyway, I think that when we think about what this season actually is and the fact that even in Bethlehem, the beginning of Christmas, if you will, we think about that they're not celebrating Christmas there. And so what does it look like now for us in solidarity to, to live into this season in light of the horrific atrocities that are that are taking place in Palestine and who the Palestinians are, who the Palestinians to me, they represent resurrection power. Mm, so powerful. Yeah. I mean, it is the Christmas story playing out right in front of our eyes. Like you just, you just said, 
with the oppressed being beaten down, crucified, just like, like Jesus and whose side are we going to be on? And like your post said, there's no doubt Jesus would be on the side of the Brown Palestinians. Oh no. Yeah. There's no doubt. It's interesting to me too. And and you maybe want to be, may be wanting to close out, but it's interesting because I actually had someone asking a question on that post about Hamas and, and I, I love it when people ask me questions like this. I'm like, okay, let's go. And this is how people just have so little knowledge. I mean, do you have brown friends? Do you have black friends? Do you know anyone who is Palestinian? We, we all, and, and I love all the Jewish people in my life and honor them. And I appreciate those who are also able to stand in solidarity with Palestine because the indoctrination when you're a Jew of Zionism is so thick because again, of that weaponization of trauma, really just keeping people in that space and re-traumatizing by telling the same story over again, rather than actually being able to remember the trauma in a way that actually can bring healing. So then it's, it's weaponized, which oh, there's so much more to say, but how does this play out for the best, like for the Palestinians? Is it the two-state solution? And if you don't want to get into this, we don't have to. But as somebody that's trying to learn and understand, what's the best ending? Do we not go there? Is that too complicated? No, I mean, I just, that is a, that's a totally different conversation. Okay, but then maybe you don't go there. I, well, no, I mean, what I think is maybe important to say is this. I think it's distilling things that are, that are very complex mm-hmm. and And that's the thing is like oversimplification. Again, this would be a part two of white supremacy culture. We're just trying to Mm -hmm. just in whitewashing something or in really trying to make it either or. I think that's doing an injustice to the reality of the situation. And so what I would say to you, this whole two-state solution, I would say to you, it's best for us to ask actual Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And I don't know any Palestinian who actually would say, great idea, because they've tried mm-hmm. for years and years and years. The trying to live peaceably with Israel didn't work. Trying to live peaceably with Israel meant that Israel kept taking a mile, five miles, a hundred kilometers. And so every time that Palestinians tried it, because prior to 1948, Jews and Christians and Muslims were living in harmony, Palestinians, they were living, of course, this is more complicated, I think, when we think about the colonial powers coming in. But once again, uh, this is a part of that, that like gaslighting and that scapegoating is that the wars were actually, and we can look across time, historically, when has war and this kind of combat actually happened, it's when colonial powers move into a space where people were already living peaceably and they try to take the land and they say, with their great God complex, this is what's best for you. We want to civilize you, which is a veil. It's a cipher. It's absolutely a lie because what it really means is we want to take your land. We want to take your home. We want to take your resource. We want to take resources. We want to take all of your culture, your traditions, your food, what makes you you. And we want to whitewash you and we want to make you. And Baba would say this, how many Baba would say this? We're going to make you not quite, almost, but not quite white. Yeah. And so you're going to have to work really hard. And this is the boys, double consciousness. You're going to work really hard to live in our language and our culture and to do it our way. And the only way that you can succeed is if you try. And this is one of the things too, Andrea, I mean, you look at like, for instance, and this is the case in so many genocides, but you look at Rwanda, for instance, what happened there 
and you're probably familiar with this, was that the, the Hutus and the Tutsis were living together. They were married. They were having families together, right? Very difficult to even determine who was who. And then colonial power comes in and decides to put one in power and the other isn't. And then all hell breaks loose. And, and we've been excused. And I say we, and I don't consider myself a we, but I do at the same time recognize that my whiteness has afforded me privileges that in fact have, have been very destructive. So I don't think that a Palestinian would say, yes, a two-state solution, because so many times they've tried to live peaceably with Israel and Israel continues to take more and more and more. And these settler colonials will literally come in and they will kill all the livestock. They will absolutely destroy the land. They'll come in, kill the families or just move them out and take over. And they can't do anything because the settler colonials have AK-47s. So yeah. Paige, I, I could keep talking to you, but we've gone for almost 90 minutes. So I want to give you a break before your next obligation. I adore you. And I thank you so, so much for sharing all that you have. We fit a lot in, in 90 minutes and there's still so much to learn and we'll put more resources in the show notes. Can you share with my listeners though, where you can be found? If people want to connect with you more, you offer coaching services, one-on-one meetings. You've got lots of places to be found. So can you share that with us? Absolutely. So uh, my website is www.pagerawson.com. You can just type in Dr. Paige Rawson. I also, my professional profile is Dr. Paige Rawson and my personal is Paige Against the Machine on Instagram. We'll put links to all of that. Thank you so much, Paige. This was a lot of time and energy. Just sharing your own story is a lot of vulnerability, but then also sharing the complexity of what's going on now. I just, I hope it has encouraged people more and more to understand, to learn and to speak up and realize the connectedness of our liberation and our humanity. And like you said earlier, that stuck with me, Palestine is a litmus test. Where do you stand on that? You can speak about Black Lives Matter, put your black square up, say love is love, but where do you stand on Palestine? Thank you, Paige. Thank you for listening in on this conversation, where honestly, we barely touched the surface on this topic. But hopefully this can be a starting place for you as you learned more about the history of Palestine and Israel and liberation and open your own eyes to what it means to stand up and speak up for liberation for everyone. As always, the links on where to connect with my guests can be found in the show notes for this episode. If you're looking for counseling or coaching services to aid in your own liberation journey, I highly recommend you check out the services Paige has to offer, and all that information can be found on their website. Paige has also provided a list of resources to dive deeper into the history of Palestine and liberation, which I've also provided in the show notes for this episode at HerStorySpeaks.com.